Well, good morning, Moberly. All right, great to see you. Glad to be here. You know, the last couple of Sundays I preached as a fill-in, but last Sunday night the church called me as your pastor on an interim basis because I don't know how to be a part-time pastor. So I'm just going to love you and lead you and share God's Word with you until Jesus comes or until He leads you to your next more permanent pastor, okay? I'm, I'm really excited today that my wife is with me, Cindy. So Cindy, would you stand up? She's so beautiful. I want you all to see how pretty she is. This is Cindy. We've been married for a lot of years. I won't tell you because she looks like she's 35. I know that. And Tim and Nate and choir, praise team, orchestra. Wow, the worship here is awesome. I mean, it's a great opportunity to worship. I've been in lots of churches, and I can say the worship here is high quality and it's sincere. So let's open our Bibles today as I continue the series through Jesus' storyteller parables. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. If you got your Bible or your device, shake it at the devil. He hates it when you bring a Bible to church. Let's hold up those Bibles and shake them. Well, that's some of you. Bring, bring a Bible or a copy of God's Word, whether you have it digitally or, or printed. Today we talk about a fool's formula for failure. Uh, the other night when I was first meeting the deacons here at Marlboro, all great guys, I told them a funny story I'd heard about three guys who went deer hunting. There was a Baptist preacher there was a doctor and there was a lawyer that went deer hunting and they're walking through the woods and a 12-point buck just steps out and all three of them simultaneously raised their guns and fired and the deer fell. And the doctor said, I shot that deer. And the lawyer said, no, I did. And the Baptist priest said, no, it was my kill. I get the deer. So they took the dead deer to a veterinarian to examine it and he came out and he said, well, without a shadow of a doubt, it's the preacher's deer. He shot it. The doctor and the lawyer said, how can you be sure that a Baptist preacher shot this deer? He said, well, you see, the bullet went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> I know a lot of times that's what you get from preaching, but I hope the Word of God lodges in your heart today. Let's talk about parables for just a moment. Jesus was a master storyteller. The word parable comes from two Greek words, parabole, which literally means alongside to toss. So what Jesus did in a parable, He would tell a story that had a literary plot and ending characters. And then alongside that, he would throw down a deep spiritual truth. And so that's what you look for beyond the story. What's the deep spiritual truth? I've often said there is a miracle in every parable and a parable in every miracle. Now, I want you to consider the context of where we are here. We've not read the first few verses of Luke, but if you took the time to do that, he's preaching to a crowd of thousands, it says. And many of them are the common people who are hearing him gladly, but many of them are his enemies, the scribes, the Pharisees, the group I called the religious mafia, because they're trying to discredit Jesus and eventually get Jesus arrested and crucified. So it's a mixed crowd. And in the middle of this intense message where Jesus has been talking about things like God can throw sinners into hell, this guy who's upset because his brother won't share his father's estate with him interrupts the sermon to ask him a personal question. Now, before we get into this parable, I want you to notice the structure that Jesus used. Because if you're a teacher, a connect group teacher, or teach anybody, you need to learn that the model that Jesus used is one that we ought to use. I, I try to employ it myself personally. First, he gives the spiritual statement, the truth. Then he illustrates it with a story. And then he ends it with the punch of the personal application. So as we're reading this parable, I will point out 
those parts to you. So if you have your Bible, let's honor God, please, by standing for the reading of his word, Luke 12, 13. Right in the middle of his sermon, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Have you all ever known families that squabbled and fought over somebody's estate? Well, it's nothing new. Friend, he said to him, this is Jesus, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? But then he's going to use this as a teaching moment. He then told them, all right, here's the, the, the statement, the principle. Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Now, that's his main point. And here's the illustration. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, yeah, what shall I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. And yes, in the King James, that's what that old saying comes from. Eat, drink, and be merry. That came from Jesus in this parable. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Then here is the punch of the application to the entire crowd. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, over the next few moments... I want each of us to consider how much treasure we've stored up down here and how much treasure we've stored up in heaven. And Lord, may we never be the kind of people that you call a fool. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, be seated. You know, the Bible uses the word, word fool a few times. It says in Psalms 53, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it's a dangerous thing to call a man or a woman a fool. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you call somebody empty-headed, you may be in danger of being arrested. But then Jesus said in Matthew 5, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's a serious matter to call someone a fool. And yet here in this parable, it is God himself who says to this foolish, rich farmer, you fool. Now, I don't know about you, but me personally, probably the worst thing I can imagine is that I, I live my entire life and I stand before God and he says, you fool. I don't want that to happen to me. Do you? No, absolutely not. So let's learn from this fool how we can avoid being called a fool by God. So what kind of person does God call a fool? First of all, number one, this guy made four mistakes. A fool equates material abundance with success. A fool is a man who says the more money you have, the more successful you are. And you know what? We're people who we love our stuff. We, we just accumulate more and more stuff. Don't you bother my stuff. It's my stuff, right? And we just pile up our stuff in our homes Somebody said that a home is nothing but a pile of stuff with a roof over the top of it. 
And when we run out of room for our stuff at the house, we have to rent spaces to store our stuff in. We just want more and more stuff. And the, the misconception has gone out there that the more stuff you have, the more successful you are. Now, that's just the way our world thinks, and they really do. Every fall, there's a great anticipation for the Forbes magazine list of billionaires. That comes out every fall in October, Forbes list of billionaires. Now, for many, many years, Bill Gates was the top of the list. And most recently, one month ago, Jeff Bezos, who the founder of Amazon, even though he split his estate with his divorced wife, he was number one with $177 billion. If you look at Elon Musk over there, his right shoulder, he's kind of grinning a little bit because since this list came out just in the past month, uh, Elon Musk, no pun intended, has rocketed past Jeff Bezos and now he's number one with $298 billion of net worth. Poor Bill Gates is down at number three at $140 billion. And, and this magazine is the best seller by far all year for Forbes magazine. By the way, it also points out every year how many millionaires there are in the United States. By far, America is the wealthiest nation on earth. There are 18 million Americans who have a net worth of one million dollars or more. So our world, our culture says the more money you have, the more successful you are. And Jesus just looks into the face of that and said, no, no, no. A man's life, a woman's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions that they have. Steve Farrar has been a longtime friend of mine, and he's written a little uh, play on the prayer now, lay me down to sleep. that just shows how materialistic we are. Maybe you'll get a chuckle out of this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Cuisinart to keep. I pray my stocks are on the rise and that my analyst is wise, that all the wine I sip is, sip is white and that my hot tub's watertight, that racquetball won't get too tough, that all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my cellular phone still works and that my career won't lose its perks. My microwave won't radiate and my condo won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close and that my money market grows. If I grow broke before I wake, I pray my Lexus they won't take. <laughs> so typical. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says the one who dies with the most toys wins. I saw another one that addressed that that said he who dies with the most toys still dies. That's true. We equate our net worth with success. You know, the world's definition of success is more and more money. Now, a lot of times people misquote this verse in the Bible. I, I've heard people say, the, they've said, money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says, is it? What does it say? It says the love of money is the root of all evil. There's nothing wrong with money. Money can do a lot of wonderful things. But it's a matter, is money your master or is money your servant? That's the world's definition of success. More and more, I have a great net worth, therefore I have great personal worth. No. God's definition of success is found in the Bible, and it's an easy verse to remember because it's my wife's birthday, Jeremiah 9.23. Read, read God defini God's definition of success. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, K-N-O-W me, God says, that I am the Lord 
who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth for in those I delight. You know what the world says? It's riches, riches, riches. You know what God says? It's a relationship. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with me. And that's why Moberly Baptist Church is about people leading people into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Our church purpose statement goes right along with this verse. That's God's definition of success. Here's the second mistake this fool made. Number two, a fool demonstrates a self-centered attitude. For this foolish farmer, it was all about me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. See, some people have called this the, the me generation. Guess what Americans invented a few years ago? We invented something called the selfie. And over the last 15 years, the number one thing that's been photographed are people photographing themselves. We invented the selfie stick. And Jesus taught just the opposite. If you're going to follow me, you got to deny your selfie. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's all about me, me, me. So if you still have your Bible open, I want you to look at verses 17 and 18 again. I want you to notice how many times this farmer uses the first personal pronoun, I, me, my. Look back up there. He said, what should I do? Circle it. Since I, there's another one, don't have anywhere to store my crops. I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and store all my grain and my goods there. In other words, he says, then I'll say to myself, in just 43 words, he uses the first personal pronoun 11 times. One out of every four words was about himself. Have you ever known people like that, that all they want to talk about is I, me, my? You know, I read one time about Eleanor Roosevelt, who was considered one of the greatest first ladies and just a charming lady. It said that she could carry on a two-hour conversation with someone without one time referring to herself. You want to know what a person is most interested in? Just listen to them talk for a while. And sometimes people only want to talk about themselves. I, me, my. And someone has said that a person who's wrapped up in themselves make a very small package. I read somewhere down in South America, there's this bird. It's called a Mimi bird. And it just has one song. Me, 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 me. I think it has some relatives up here in East Texas. Don't you agree? He's, he was so self-centered, and that's what a fool is, someone who is self-centered. The Bible teaches just the opposite. The more humble you are and, and interested in other people, the more wise you are. Proverbs 28, 26 says, the one who trusts in himself is a fool, but the one who walks in wisdom will be safe. Now, in all the history of America, the most deadly homegrown or domestic terrorist plot attack took place on, Mar on April 19, 1995, when Timothy McVeigh detonated a truck bomb in front of the federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 men, women, and children. And you know why he did that? He was mad at the federal government because they thought they had mistreated poor little me. And of course, he was arrested. If you know what happened in 2001, he was getting ready to be executed by lethal ejection. And, of course, every last death row prisoner gets a chance to have their last words. Do you know what he said just before he died? He chose to quote, quote that poem Invictus by William Ernest Hensley. 
I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate. He's talking about Jesus there who talked about the straight gate. How charged with punishment the scroll, meaning the Bible, what it says about sin. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And one nanosecond after he died, he realized something. He was not the master of his fate, nor the captain of his soul. You see, instead of saying something, I'm sorry about all the misery I caused, the death I caused, the pain I caused, he said, I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. That's the attitude of a lot of Americans today who don't don't want anything to do with God, Jesus, or the Bible, or church. They think they're the masters of their faith, the captain of their soul. Compare that, contrast that with the last words of one of the most famous Baptist missionaries, William Carey, who spent decades in continental India sharing the gospel, first in translating the scriptures into Sanskrit. He spent decades there. His dear wife died first, and he buried her there in the Indian soil put up a tombstone, and as he was getting ready to die, knew he didn't have any more days, he said, I don't even want a tombstone. Just bury me next to my wife, but have these final words etched on my tombstone. William Carey's last words, a guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus and my all. That's the difference between a self-centered person and a totally unselfish servant of God. William Carey has three universities named after him, and Timothy McVeigh will never have anything named after him. See, why doesn't Forbes publish a list every year of the 10 greatest dads, the 10 greatest moms, the 10 best marriages? Because that's not what interests the world today. All they want is more and more money, and they're so self-centered. Here's the third mistake that our foolish farmer made. A fool estimates that more wealth will relieve stress. That's what he thought. All I have to do is make a little bit more money, and my stress level will go down. Maybe not relieve stress, but reduce stress. Just a little more wealth. If, and that's what most Americans think. If I could just get a little more money... Life would be a lot easier. I want to live on easy street. <laughs> I was surprised to learn when I moved to Tyler that there really is an easy street in Tyler. Any of you ever been there or know of it? Yeah. My predecessor, Paul Powell, who's in heaven now, he lived on easy street. I remember he told me one time, he said, it's anything but easy street. You can't even pull out on Paluxy, the traffic's so bad. It's, it's hard to live on easy street. You know, the Romans had an old saying that said, money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get, and the more money you have, the more money you want. If I could just win the lottery, my life would be so much less stressful. No, it's just the opposite. Stress comes with money. Last month, the Atlantic Magazine published an article, and you know what the title of the article was? The Terribly Miserable Lives of Lotto Winners. I mean, most lotto winners end up in bankruptcy or killing themselves. It's just amazing how miserable they become if they win the lottery. So more wealth will not produce less stress. All right, here is a question. It's not rhetorical. If you know the answer, you probably do some of you. Just say it out loud. In all the history of the world, 
Who is the wealthiest man that ever lived? The wealthiest man of history. Solomon. Who said that? All right, several of y'all. Good for y'all. You are exactly right. Solomon was the only trillionaire. Economists have taken all the assets in the Old Testament they owned in gold and silver and livestock and stables and property and castles and horses, and they have estimated that his worth in today's dollars would be 2.1 trillion, that's with a TR, trillion dollars. Now, Solomon's an interesting guy, isn't he? Prayed for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. You know, the three books that he had a part of in the Bible, he wrote the Song of Solomon, of course, when he was young and full of romance and vim and vigor. He wrote some of the Proverbs when he was at the very height of his wisdom. But then the Bible says that Solomon had a thousand wives. Now think about that, a thousand wives. In Proverbs, he said, whoso finds a wife finds a good thing. That's too much of a good thing. Don't you agree? <laughs> now guys, just think about it. That's a thousand mothers-in-law. You ever thought about that? But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the, his foreign wives turned his heart from God when he was old. So that's what we have in Ecclesiastes. Just a sad, old, bitter guy who's kind of reflecting on his life. My friend Ray Stedman called Ecclesiastes the only book of the Bible that is inspired error. Because most of it is examined from the perspective of under the sun instead of from the perspective of heaven. So Solomon had it all. $2.1 trillion. How do you think his life was? Well, you can read for yourself. You don't have to wonder. Ecclesiastes 2.10. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I want that. I want that. I want that. I want that. I want him. I want her. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. For I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was the reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Does that sound stressless to you? No. You know what it's like to have a whole lot of money? Go out this afternoon and try to chase after the wind. And let me know when you catch it. So what's the opposite of greed and materialism? It is contentment in Christ. Godliness with contentment is of great value in God's eyes. And so those that have the least amount of stress are those who are content with what they have. The first billionaire in American history was none other than Howard Hughes. Wasn't he a happy guy? Just so happened that he spent the last three years of his life holed up in the top three floors of the Xanadu Resort and Hotel in Freeport, Grand Bahama Island. It just so happened that during the same time, my dad was operating a, a timber company in Freeport, Grand Bahama Island. He and my mother and my brother lived there about three blocks from the Xanadu. You know, toward the end, Howard Hughes was such a germaphobe, he never cut his hair never cut his fingernails, never cut his toenails. My mother said she used to walk on the beach in front of the Xanadu and look for funny-looking toenail marks in the footprints. <laughs> but she never found it. You know why? He never left that penthouse. He died a sad, lonely, isolated old man at the age of 70, but everybody said he looked like he was over 100. 
No, the more you have, the more stress you have. The happiest people are those who are content in Jesus. And finally, the last mistake he made, a fool miscalculates the length and the meaning of life. The length and the meaning of life. Look at verse 19 again. He said, I have many good things for many years. He was 50% right, which made him 100% wrong. He did have many things, but he didn't have many years. That night, God came and said, you fool, tonight your life is demanded of you. Have you ever noticed how when we ask somebody how old they are, and ladies, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you. We answer in years. I don't know why we do that, because the Bible in Psalm 90 says, you know, we should number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. What that means is every single day that God gives you to live is a blessing and a gift from God, and you ought to thank God for every day of life you have, because life is short. Compared to eternity, life is short. Look at James chapter 4, verse 14. It says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you, or meaning your life, are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Didn't happen this morning. It was a little too warm. But some other mornings this week when you walk outside on these cold, chilly mornings and you breathe out, you see that little puff of fog and then it just dissipates. The Bible says that's your life. That's my life. The 70 or 80 years that we're going to spend here go like that. So he miscalculated the, the length and the meaning of life. He thought the meaning of life was to accumulate more and more and more. Time is something you can't accumulate. I, I loved the music of Jim Croce when I was growing up. I still do because he was of my generation. He wrote a number one song that some of you recognize where he said, if I could save time in a bottle, the first thing I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away just to spend it with you. Now, that is some of the most romantic words ever written, I think. Wow. He really loved the woman he was writing that about. But you know the eerie truth about those lyrics and that song? Jim Croce was dead in a plane crash down here in Natchitoches, Louisiana, in 1973 before the song was even released. Not only did he not get to save time in a bottle for eternity, he was gone before the song became a hit. Just a reminder to us that God does promise you eternal life, but he just doesn't promise you tomorrow. Life is short. The meaning of life is not accumulating more goods. It is living for God. Those of you who are in real estate, you can answer this out loud. What are the three most important factors in real estate? Location, location, location. And when it comes to your treasures, the same is true. Location, location, location. Are all your treasures down here? Or how many treasures do you have in heaven? That's what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 19. He said, don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded or, or by rust or worst, stolen by burglars, stockpile treasure in heaven 
where it is safe from moth, rust, and burglars, the place where your treasure is, <clears throat> is a place you will most want to be and end up being. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now, that's the whole point of the point Jesus was making in this parable. So it will be for everyone who is not rich toward God. You say, Pastor, how do we stay rich toward God? By making sure most of your treasure's in heaven instead of down here. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. I used to think it was where your heart is, your treasure will be. In other words, wherever you have a heart for something, you're going to put your money there. But no, it's just the opposite. He said, where you put your treasure, your heart will follow. There's the magnetic power of your treasure. In other words, if you put a lot of money in missions, your heart's going to be in missions. You put a lot of money in the ministry of this church, this is where your heart's going to be. I got a friend who's a pastor in Fiji, Pastor Carullo, Suli Carullo. Every year they have a big, huge missions conference where they raise money for missions. And one of his most successful businessmen came to him during their missions conference and said, Pastor, I want to be honest with you. I just don't have a heart for missions. So tell me how I can have a heart for missions. And so he said, sure, take out your checkbook and write me a $50,000 check for missions. And I guarantee your heart will be in missions. <laughs> That's the way it works. Where you put your treasure, your heart will be. And you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And when you invest in the money God allows you to manage in the kingdom of God, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are laying up treasures in heaven. You know why some of you, your heart seems to be cold and dark and dull? Because your heart's in some bank vault somewhere, some safety deposit box, some investment account somewhere. Instead, God wants you to be rich toward him. So let's move this story up to modern day. Wealthy businessman, business is going like crazy, so big that he has to design new warehouses so one night he's laid in his office with the blueprints laid out on, his pay, on the table, thinking about how he's going to expand his business even more. And in that moment, God comes in and says, you fool tonight, your life is required of you. The next morning, his assistant finds him slumped over those blueprints. They take him and they bury him. The obituary just bragged about what a great businessman he was, businessman of the year had a big funeral where everybody talked about what a great guy he was, took him out and put him in a big, huge mausoleum in the cemetery. And that night, God sends an angel who writes in red paint over that mausoleum, F-O-O-L. And so it will be for everyone who is not rich toward God. But my hero, Jim Elliott, who in 1956 went down to Ecuador to take the gospel with his friends to this tribe called the Aka Indians, was killed by these same natives that he was trying to give the gospel to. They found these words in his journal. He is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he can never lose. So much of stuff in our life that we have, we can't keep, we shouldn't even want to keep. There's one thing that we can never lose, and that is that precious personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that relationship and you're watching on live stream or in person, I'd like to tell you how you can do that. Would you bow your head with me right now? 
If you'd like to enter into a relationship with Jesus, just pray a simple but sincere prayer like this. Dear Father, I admit I'm a sinner. I can never be good enough to earn heaven. Thank you for sending Jesus to take my place on the cross and to take the penalty for my sins. Right now, I want to trust Jesus with my future, my today and the rest of my todays. Please take control of my life, Jesus. I will live for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.